Good afternoon to you, slightly earlier than advertised previously. It's me, Richie Allen, with a Tuesday's programme. Hope you're having a terrific day. I've got an interesting programme coming your way between now and 6.30. Two hours of analysis, of analysis, he says, of information and of um, entertainment, maybe, that you won't get anywhere else today. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Would you believe it? As of September, 12,000 people have filed petitions at the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program in the United States, basically saying that they were injured by a COVID jab, right? Now, that's not to be confused with the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Programme. We're going to talk about that with Wayne Rohde. He's a really interesting guy based in Minnesota. He wrote a book called The Vaccine Court 2.0, and he's got a terrific podcast, which is called Right On Point. So Wayne Rohde will be on the programme a little bit later on. What do you do if you've been destroyed by a COVID jab in the United States of America? We'll find out with Wayne a little bit later on. I'd love to hear from you during the course of the programme. Do it to me. Send me a message via my web my website, richieallen.co.uk, or you could download the app. If you like, download the app and send me your comments that way. Yeah, what it is is the Manchester United are playing at home tonight in the Champions League. Now, ordinarily, I don't attend midweek games because I take my job and my commitment to it very seriously. And I'm not joking when I say that. But um, in light of Sir Bobby Charlton passing away at the weekend, somebody who meant a lot to me, even though I didn't know the man, obviously, I'll be walking down there at the conclusion of this programme. But you're not missing out. It's a two-hour programme, very interesting guest, and we have some interesting things to talk about between now and when we meet our guests. So that's what uh, the reason, the only reason I'm doing it a half hour earlier uh, tonight, and that's because I'll be heading down the road a bit later. Okie doke. Right, where do I want to start then? I had a lovely 10 minutes on the phone this morning with uh, Dr. Anne McCloskey from Derry. You know Anne, an amazing lady, a retired GP, beautiful spirit, I think. I've had a few private convos with Anne over the last couple of years. She came on the programme a couple of times as well. She was retired when the COVID thing started. You might remember and then went to help out because Anne, like so many decent men and women, believed every word of it and said, well, I'll go and help out as, you know, being a, a GP, a qualified and a very well-respected GP. And what she found when she went back to help out, of course, set her on a completely different journey, something she never imagined. And you know that Anne was suspended by the General Medical Council because of comments she made about the COVID jab. Now, this tribunal sits in Manchester, at least the one that's, you know, judging Anne. And it was announced today, probably unsurprisingly, that she's been given a further suspension of six months, according to the BBC, for using her position to undermine the public health message on 
coronavirus, right? As I said, Anne had been suspended by the GMC over the comments. The extended um, suspension announced today, they found, the tribunal found, it found, her actions fell below standards expected of a doctor and that this amounted to misconduct. This is an inversion, of course. Her actions fell absolutely squarely on the standards we would expect of a doctor who is not compromised by the pharmaceutical lobbies and some of the biggest corporations in the world. I thought her conduct was bang on. She raised serious questions about the safety of the jabs and more importantly about whether children and teenagers even needed the jabs because whatever COVID was and I know you and I sometimes differ on what it was you curmudgeonly contrary old feckers. We do disagree sometimes, don't we? But whatever it was, it was nothing that really worried children. And Anne expressed these concerns in a video she made about uh, young people having the jabs. So she was suspended because of this, because we inhabit tyranny land now. There are no countries. Forget about uh, Australia. Forget about Ireland. Forget about, I'm trying to think of some obscure country now, Pilau. Forget about it. We live in tyranny world where people can be suspended and then the suspension can be extended because they did their bloody job, even though she'd been retired. And said, you know what, I can't see why children would need these jobs. Something is wrong. So the tribunal said that her actions fell below standards expected of a registered doctor again. Therein lies the inversion. Her actions for everybody else fell right within the boundaries of what we would expect of a decent doctor. Because I remember my old doctor growing up, you couldn't get anything out of her. All you could get was a kick in the arse and a lollipop as you left. Get out and get some fresh air. You'll be all right. Behave yourself. Get some exercise. Drink loads of water. You know, open the bloody windows. That's what the old doctors would have said. Kick in the arse. There's a lollipop for you. And don't steal any more of my magazines. And that was the end of that. Off you went. So man, I had a lovely chat with her today. Obviously not remotely perturbed by this situation. She's a great lady, isn't she? But uh, for the moment can't speak with us because there are some legal issues pending. But when those issues are resolved, one way or the other, she'll be back speaking to people like me, to Muppets like me, she'll be chatting. So she didn't attend, of course, and uh, that's that. Yes, we've seen this, of course. It seems to be in Ireland, really. We've seen this with Jerry Waters. What a, what a man. We've seen this with Pat Morrissey. What a man. Marcus de Bruyne, what a man. You know, God damn them for giving an honest opinion. You don't need that shit. What? You don't need that shit. I can't see how COVID is that serious. You don't need that shit. Just take your vitamin D3 and, uh, you know, wrap up well. Plenty of water. Yeah, they're all... Yeah, I know. Anyway, the tribunal, though, did, to its credit... I'm not giving it any credit. It did note in its notes, in its notes, in its footnotes, that Anne had served 40 years as a GP without any previous misconduct. (laughs) Oh, you were happy for her to come back and volunteer when you were telling us that the hospitals were overflowing, that people were falling off of trolleys as COVID was ravaging the world, even though it wasn't. Oh, you were happy for her to come back then. But uh, not when she started looking around and saying, what the is going on here anyway let's leave that for the moment don't know where i am now with this early start don't know where i am with the timings uh, flooding is being blamed on climate change we'll do a little bit on climate change a bit later on
climate change could the failure like they're talking about the storm Babbitt or Bebbit, I can't remember and the flooding we saw in some parts of the country and we saw footage of sky and BBC reporters knee deep in water didn't we looking angst ridden angst ridden look at that 91 year old lady over there in the rowing boat being rowed up and down her street why is she being rowed up and down her street I can see a dry patch over there what's going on when I watch the coverage and they stand there and they give loads and loads and loads of coverage to it and of course they do this because they want to blame it on climate change you know every time there's a flood they give it more and more and more airtime as they talk about the humanity of people and it is terrible for people don't think I find it funny I said this the other day nothing funny about it I mean we have a home now me and that frog that I cohabit with we have a home might be handy for her if it rains or if it floods we have a home I can't think of anything worse than it flooding and all that damage and everything so every time it happens more and more airtime and you see Inzaman Inzi Inzaman Rashid for Sky standing there with his mad beard on him looking really sad for all the poor residents Nobody talks about the failure to mitigate mitigate against the flooding, like dredging the rivers, which they gave up years ago because the European Union said, don't dredge the rivers. Why? Because, well, there's a crazy little fly, and it has a name, this fly, with 77 letters in it. Nobody can fucking pronounce it. Nobody knows what it does. But if you dredge, you might uh, disturb its nest. Fuck the fly, is what most normal people would say. But uh, no, we, we just won't dredge anymore. And when it rains, the river will burst its banks and your house will be destroyed and we'll claim it. Climate change will claim it. More on climate change a little bit later on. You can reach out to me via the usual ways. RichieAllen.co.uk, my website. Or you can leave a message for me via the app. I'm going to keep whinging on about the app. So it's uh, The Richie Allen Show. Just look for The Richie Allen Show. I iPhones. You look on the App Store. If you have an Android, look on Google Play. Download it and give us a nice review there. I don't care if you don't like the program. I want a nice review. Just say something like, brilliant or something. Five stars. That'll do me. It might attract one or two people uh, to the program. Hi to Amanda Glover. Hi, Amanda. Nice to hear from you. You've sent me a very long email. I'll read it a bit later on. Uh, Good evening to Christopher Good evening to Mary, who's listening to the programme in Dundrum for the very first time. This is amazing. Somebody reached out to us yesterday and said she was listening to the programme for the very first time. Mary in Dundrum. How are you? Connors at tea. Diagwit. Nilayne Hinton, Mara Hinton fame. So thanks for finding me. 19 minutes it is to the top of the hour. Okie doke. Let's talk then about something. Let's talk about Gillian Keegan, the education secretary. Now, Gillian Keegan wants to compel schools to share educational materials with parents. Yes, vaudeville. Imagine that you would have to tell schools. Imagine that you would have to give headmasters and headmistresses, or head teachers as they call them this day, a kick in the sphincter to get them to share the materials with the parents. Imagine you have to do that. But I blame the parents, to be honest. Because I come from stock that wouldn't have put up with this in the 21st century. I come from stock where they would have rung up the school and asked them, what are you teaching Richard? Because my grandparents and my my mother and my aunts, they refer to me as Richard. What are you teaching Richard in sex education? Nobody would have dared say, we're not telling you. 
wouldn't have happened because they would have walked into the school and it would have been chaos. It would have kicked the feck off kind of a thing. But Keegan, the education secretary, says they want to compel schools to share the materials. Now, we know, or we've learned, that in some instances, when parents asked to see the papers and the books and the teaching materials, some schools said, not all schools, but some said, no, we can't present you with the materials because the materials are provided to us by a third party and we would be breaching copyright law. So some third party, not even, you know, connected to the school, is providing us with sex and personal relationships and personal hygiene and all that stuff. PHSD, we're being given this stuff from outside. We can't tell you what it is. Let me read from Sky News. Keegan, the education secretary, is encouraging schools in England to share what materials they are providing in the classroom to, quote, debunk, end quote, the copyright myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Keegan writ, wrote even writ, wrote to parents to inform them of their right to know what the kids are seeing and being taught in the classroom. She said companies providing teaching resources cannot use copyright law to forbid schools from sharing materials and that any attempt to do so through contract terms would be unenforceable and void. So this letter from Keegan to teachers and parents comes after a review into relationships, sex, health and education was announced in March over concerns that children are being exposed to inappropriate content. Now the government was supposed to produce guidance, dear listener, and it was supposed to come out during the summer as to what is and what isn't appropriate for children, but the government has delayed that and it won't come out until later this year. Now, Claire Page is somebody I invited on this programme, but declined. That's okay. A parent who is concerned about indoctrinating teaching and a lack of transparency in the UK schools. Last year, she was denied access to the slides used to teach a sex education lesson to her 15-year-old daughter, and she was also told she could not know who taught the lesson. Here she is speaking to Times Radio about this subject a little bit earlier today. Parents, listen up. This impacts you too. It's very clear that the government wants to fix this problem, and that's heartening. Um, It was in Rishi Sunak's uh, conference speech, um, and I'm glad they're addressing it. But Mm. unfortunately, I don't think this is the solution we're after. Why? Well, fundamentally, this is about commercial secrecy in the classroom. And what the government has tried to do is instruct schools to sort of disregard that and prioritise the parent. Mm. But as it happens, I've already lost a court case um, regarding secrecy. So the law, you know, the case law is not yet on our side. The government feels it can ask schools to override um, commercial secrecy and, and just press ahead anyway. But what I'm worried that does is fundamentally pass the secrecy onto the parent. So we're going to be receiving resources which um, commercial providers have made it very clear they don't want and uh, shown to the public. She's quite intelligent, it's clear, Paige. She's noticed the problem with Gillian Keegan. So it sounds great on the one hand that Gillian Keegan is saying the schools must provide this material to the parents. The schools are saying we can't because, you know, we might be in breach of copyright and we could be in trouble. And what this woman is saying is this issue now will be passed on to the parents. And maybe the providers of the materials might sue the parents 
for breach of copyright. And listen to how she explains it. And this is the issue, just to be clear for us, because it's not necessarily materials which the schools are making and using for themselves. This is really concerning when it's an external agency or, or provider that's being brought in to do this. That's right. So a state school would probably would definitely show you its uh, work under a freedom of information request because they're a government funded body. Mm. Um, but an external provider, say a charity or a company, uh, they can actually say, this is my intellectual property. I'm going to protect this and I'm going to set the terms on which it can be seen. And so what I think the government has asked is they have said, well, look, the schools need to prioritise parents and you can show them. But once I get hold of those materials, I will come under the sort of uh, the secrecy desires of this company because I'm holding their intellectual property. And very often these companies have made it clear they don't want these things in the public realm. So your concern, they, so your concern is, is that you could see what the topics are that your kids are being taught in sex education, but you then wouldn't be able to publicly reveal that. It would just be for your own knowledge. I mean, what's wrong with that? If your concern is what's being taught in schools, why do, why do you need the ability yeah. to be able to share it widely? He's a bit dim, isn't he? But she puts him straight. That's a good point. I mean, the reason that we want to see these materials is because, firstly, these these are important to society and they're important to democracy, actually. Um, we need to be able to refer these materials to Ofsted. We need to be able to talk about them amongst ourselves with other parents, in the press, maybe, um, you know, which because these are matters of uh, p- particular public interest. So if we can't act on what we see, we're not really in a better position as a parent. Pretty much because you can't discuss it, you can't challenge it together as a group. Interesting, interestingly enough, her daughter told her, her mum, that her or HSE lesson included the claim that we live in a heteronormative society, that this is a bad thing, and that she, the kid, the 15-year-old, should be sex positive in her attitude to relationships. That's the kind of thing that if I had a child, and I, I, I may never, I may never know what it's like, but if I had a daughter who was 15, and I learned that somebody told her, we live in a heteronormative society, that's not a good thing, and that she should be sex positive in her attitude to relationships, I would knock whoever told her that. I would knock them out. And if it was a female teacher, I would hire a female... (laughs) I would hire a female bouncer to do that on my behalf. It's quite crazy what is being taught to children in schools in the UK. Heteronormative society, that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It is the thing. The vast majority of people in the UK are heterosexual and they have relationships with somebody of the opposite sex. That is the norm. Homosexuality isn't the norm. There's nothing wrong with it. Of course not. But it isn't the norm, nor is bisexuality. Or, I'm not going to get into it. We were never asked about schooling. I don't know about you. Maybe it's a form of abuse. We were never asked anything. We got home. When I went to primary school, St. Saviour's in Ballybeg, we got in the door. Nobody said, what did you learn today? It was just a case of, did you behave yourself? Yeah, even if you didn't. And that was it. Have you homework to do? Yeah, well, go and do it then. And that was that. Went and did it. Nobody said, what did they teach you today? Even in secondary school, when we were doing biology lessons and receiving biology lessons, nobody ever said, what did you learn? Just wasn't a thing. Good evening. This is your Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live from BBG Towers, here in the heart of Salford, with me, Richie Allen, slightly earlier today. If you happen to have come in on 
it. Don't worry about it. Of course, it'll be uh, the podcast will be online shortly after the program. It repeats, of course, from seven p.m. onwards on the app and on the website too. It's coming up for 10 minutes to the top of the hour if you need to be somewhere. The programmes and this programme all week long is sponsored by NutraHealth 365. Do check out NutraHealth 365. Boost your immune system for this coming winter. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. You're listening to the saviour of independent media, Richie Allen. The one and only. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. I do have a Twitter account, by the way. It's at BBG Richie on Twitter. That's R-I-C-H-I-E. Do give us a follow there. Even though, after soliciting the follow, I'll then tell you that I don't tend to use it very often. Hi to Les. Hi, Les. Who says, Richie, this is Les Lane. L-E-Z, so I presume it's a lady. You should check out the GB News interview on Saturday with Andrew Bridgen and Dr. David Steele, who, who is a regular doctor on Sky News. Now, this would have taken place, Les, because Bridgen attempted to have a debate in the House of Commons on Friday about excess death issues in the UK. There is a huge rise in the number of excess deaths in this country, particularly among young people. Bridgen, who won't be an MP for very much longer, sadly for him. But to be fair to him, he's had a go to bring up issues with the vaccines and now to bring up excess debts. Very few people turned up on Friday. But on Saturday, says Les, he got into this excess deaths with David Steele, a doctor, who's usually on Sky, but this is on GB News. And his reply to Bridgen's claims was laughable. He congratulated Bridgen on being thorough in his work, but then the doctor claimed that the excess deaths, the reason for these deaths is for other reasons, like a huge rise in flu deaths. I didn't see that, Les, but thank you very much for the heads up. Very interesting. Hi to Gail, who used to ask her youngest son what he did at school, and he used to say nothing, but there was a dog in the playground, says Gail. <laughs> Back when dogs used to roam around housing estates and, and nobody thought there was anything wrong with that at all. Going to take a tune when we come back. More from Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. With me, Richie Allen, by the way, the BBG. This is music from the BG. This is the first time we ever held, we ever heard even. This is the first time we ever heard Barry's. Barry's falsetto. Have a listen. Back in three. Climbing on the nights on Broadway. The Bee Gees on the Richie Allen Show. And nights on Broadway, as I said earlier on. Barry's falsetto getting an earring for the very first time in the career of the Fab Three. The Richie Allen Show. Listeners joining. Didn't get the memo earlier on. Don't worry about that. 
If you are just joining the programme, it's uh, 4.30 to 6.30 today, only because, as I mentioned earlier, and I will not mention again, I'm walking down the road this evening to uh, be there for the tribute to Sir Bobby Charlton at Old Trafford before United play Copenhagen in the Champions League. I ordinarily give midweek games a miss because I have a job and this is it. But tonight I want to be there to pay my own tribute to the man who I never knew but uh, loved a lot. So there you are. Got a terrific guest coming up for you in around about a half an hour's time. You do not want to miss him at all. Uh, he's uh, an author and a podcaster. His name is Wayne Rohde. His book has been foreworded. You can't say that. The foreword is written by RFK Jr. He's written a book called The Vaccine Court 2.0. What do you do when you've been destroyed by a vaccine in the United States of America? We'll get into that with Wayne a little bit later on in the programme. Where am I going now is the question. Hmm. Hospital leaders in this country have defended, quote, vital, end quote, vital now, equality and diversity roles after the Health Secretary Stephen Barclay criticised an advertisement for a job. A job, advertising, looking for a diversity, equality and inclusivity officer. We need an officer for our diversity, equality and inclusivity. And we're willing to pay £96,000 a year for somebody to come and teach us how to be more diverse, to be more equal and to be more inclusive. Now, Barclay last week wrote to local health service managers and said, what the fuck is going on? This money could be better spent elsewhere. In fact, ninety-six grand is about what the average consultant surgeon would receive in salary. So rather than put one of these diversity, equality and inclusivity officers in, you could get yourself a surgeon. Especially that you've got 7 million people on waiting lists in the UK because you closed the health service down through 2020 and 2021. Anyway, this made me laugh. The BBC Politics Live got into this today in some detail. You will hear Joe Coburn. All right, we're going to talk about this headline in The Times. NHS hospital chiefs defend £96,000 diversity job advert. Uh, this comes as the Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, has told NHS organisations to stop recruiting equality, diversity and inclusion roles, having seen uh, the advert paying almost £100,000, which is equivalent to a hospital consultant salary. Let's talk to Joe. Geraldine Gallagher, the CEO of the Executive Coaching Consultancy, who works to promote diversity within workplaces. Geraldine Gallagher. They're idiots over here. It's Gallagher. Gallagher. Geraldine loves a bit of diversity training. She's made a career out of training managers how to implement diversity and inclusivity in their handling of their staff. Listen to Geraldine. Well, I think um, the main thing that uh, diversity and inclusion roles do is that they take account of the fact that increasingly organisations have a very diverse workforce. So you have to be able to understand your workforce in all its in all its diversity. You have to be able to understand your workforce in all of its diversity, she said. In all its in all its diversity. But but don't people come to work and don't they have specific tasks they have to carry out like? Like my missus is an accountant, right, for a big firm, a big global firm. Lots of people 
in that firm, various parts of the world, but they've got to just settle accounts at the end of the day. What difference does it make to the manager or the manageress where in the world they happen to come from? What can you do in terms of what should you do to acknowledge their, I don't know, their exotic ethnicities? Or should you just say, listen, I I expect you to have the account settled by the end of the day. You get a 15-minute break in the morning, a 15-minute break in the afternoon. You get a half an hour for lunch. Where does diversity come into any of this? Geraldine. And when it comes to the NHS, which has to be, you know, a huge employer, which is a huge employer, and indeed one of the most diverse organisations I've ever worked with, I mainly work in the private sector, then um, I think we've seen through, certainly through COVID, some of the mistakes uh, that were made and indeed some of the patient outcomes that were negative for from people from different um, from you know minority ethnic communities for example so actually not having enough diversity at the top from a leadership perspective is very dangerous actually because dangerous because um, we, <laughs> what we're seeing in uh, the NHS and we understand from COVID as well that you know so many people um, you know their actual experiences differed depending on their ethnicity, which, you know, surely is something that um, we need to tackle. Their experiences differed based on their ethnicity. So a person who comes from a Sikh background experienced their visit to the hospital a bit differently to the person who comes from, I don't know, a white British background, right? Or somebody who comes from an Afro-Caribbean background. They experience the hospital a bit differently. What does that even mean? What are the cultural minefields, dear listener, that doctors, consultants and nurses need to be aware of when drawing blood or when listening to somebody's heartbeat with a stethoscope? I mean, come on! Is there any proof that companies need diversity, equality and inclusion training? Companies... Companies are there to make money. They employ employees to perform certain tasks, to help them achieve their, their, their objectives, ultimately, which is to make money. What are they talking about? Are they talking about issuing instructions to people in different ways based on how they appear or how they identify? That's what it is, really. It's mad shit, this. You know, because I worked in companies when I was at uni, and there were plenty of black people and Asian people, and we were all told the same feckin' things. Right, shut up. Get on with your work. You're back five minutes later after lunch than you should be. Get on with it. You'll have to stay back five minutes after four o'clock. It didn't matter where you came from. Is there any proof that companies need to have diversity, equality and inclusion officers? £96,000 a year. Well, I mean, as I say, I work mainly in the private sector and none of the organisations, and I work with financial services sector, professional services, and they're not rowing back on diversity and inclusion for the simple reason that it does actually work. Um, it is nowadays um, foolhardy to imagine that you're going to attract the best graduates, for example, if you don't have um, diversity and inclusion high in your agenda. And also working with leaders Nowadays, it's so important that leaders understand how to lead inclusively because they are... That's a load of bollocks, that. You won't attract the best candidates if you don't have diversity and inclusion high in your agenda. I mean, just just attach that nonsense to a law firm. Somebody graduates with a first in law from Cambridge University. Do you honestly think that when they go looking to become an associate at a law firm, 
that they give a shit about the equality and diversity policies of the firm. All they're thinking about is what type of case law they're going to need to know. What sort of cases are handled by this firm? How much money am I going to fucking make? That's all that matters. This is crazy stuff, isn't it? They are actually, it's complex to run an organisation with lots of disparate people within it and you need to understand different... No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to revolve around the minorities. The majority should not be revolving around the minorities. They shouldn't be. You shouldn't be making assumptions and disempowering people. Oh, we've got some people from a Hindu background working at the firm. Oh, it must be terribly alarming for them to be surrounded by so many fucking white people. Well, in fact, no, it isn't. They've grown up in the UK. So we need to tiptoe around them and we need to tailor their working experience. Tailor it to them. Make them have an experience of the law firm as a Hindu person. And the productivity will increase. It's crazy, absolutely unscientific crazy shit this. But maybe there's a job opportunity out there. If you haven't been tweeting your genuine opinions about issues over the last few years and you've kept reasonably quiet, there's a gig here for you. If you want to endorse this stuff and get involved with it, Geraldine will train you. And there's a job waiting at the end of it worth £96,000 a year to go and tell managers and manageresses that they need to be a little bit more diverse and inclusive. Crazy. ...to be able to do that successfully. So I think there's a good understanding in the private sector that, in fact, diversity, equity and inclusion is really important. And I would have thought this is magnified um, hugely in, mm. the, in the public sector All just right. due to the... The number of people that, um, patients that, you know, come from a variety of backgrounds. Patients that come from a variety of backgrounds. Why do you go to hospital? Because you're unwell. Right? What happens there? Well, in theory, anyway. When I say what happens, I say in theory, right? You meet an expert and he or she says, this is what's wrong with you. You need to stay in a couple of days and this is what we're going to give you. Why do you need to employ somebody on a £96,000 a year salary to tell that consultant that they need to tailor their, their approach to you differently than they would to a white British person? Why? Why, like? You're here to be looked after. I'm here to look after you. Don't give a shit whether you're a traveller, whether you're a Hindu, a Sikh, a Muslim... It doesn't matter. The protocol is the same. The fucking tablets I'm going to prescribe are the same. The bed sheets are the same on your bed as they are on the seat guy around the corner. How did this stuff ever, ever get any traction? How? How was this not obliterated by comedians and satirists? 96 grand a Calm down. 96,000 pounds a year. Do you think if I change my name by deed poll, when I eventually get kicked off the air, and I just decide to embrace this stuff, because what's the point, like? Because after you're kicked off air, you might as well join him. Do you think if I was to alter my appearance, get some plastic surgery done, change my name, because I'm a reasonably charismatic guy, I might get a gig nearly £100,000 a year telling people to be more diverse. It is... Absolutely insane. It is nearly nine minutes past the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show. For the last time. I know, I know you're not on Twitter. And I know you don't have time to be on the website either. Um, early start 
early finish today to our show. It'll be on podcast later on. You missed a few giggles earlier on if you're joining now, so pick it up on the podcast later on. David says, Richie, I watch talk TV so you don't have to. David, I watch all. I watch all and listen to all of the media. Thank you for your comment. I'll be dealing with it in a minute. Patricia says, give it up, Richie. Sadly, logic means nothing to these people. Correct. Christine says, Richie, my experience last week while Jess was in hospital, um, and he's recovering, thankfully. Uh, say hello, Christine. She says, "Was nurses and doctors are more concerned with the lack of money and the overuse of managers, or as I call them, pen pushers. I would say here, coloured nurses and doctors are in the majority in our local hospital. Thank you, Christine. David says, diversity, it's another grifter's paradise. That's a different David. Tim says, the diversity and inclusion industry is like the health and safety industry of 30 years ago. A self-fulfilling, pointless money pit. That's an excellent comment, Tim. That is a very good point, my friend. Yes, yes, I remember, because I was only entering the workforce. I was only entering the workforce. A wide-eyed, bushy-tailed young man who knew nothing about working or interpersonal relationships at work. It was all new to me. But when I started work at Waterford Crystal as a tour guide, they were all whinging. All the employees were whinging, men and women, whinging, whinging, whinging. Because Elf and Safety had just landed on the shores of Ireland. And people who had quite happily gone about their jobs for 30, I nearly said 30, 30 years, where all of a sudden had people standing around them, pointing at them, like they were zoo animals. Yeah, well, yeah, I see what you're doing there, but yeah, you, you know, yeah, you have to be careful there, you have to think about, and they were coming up with mad terms. You know, mad injuries that you might do, crazy, got to worry about this and spinal this and spinal that. Guys there, look, I've stood at this diamond wheel for 30 years cutting this fucking glass. This is how I do it. Well, you should have earplugs in and you should have a mask over your mouth and we think you should have, um, what else were they calling for? All sorts of mad stuff. But the workers had their way. They said, no, this is how we do it. Claire says, total crap for the NHS reference. Most senior health professionals are ethnic minorities. Can you really say that, Claire? Can you prove that? She says, the experience is no different. It's called unconditional positive regard. It's part of our ethical code. Well said. And Mike says, what an absolute crank is your woman is your woman, what's her name? I can't remember her name already. Are you the best candidate for the job required? Good, congratulations, you're hired. That's how it should be, says Mike in Hall. God, the time is flying. Must be having fun. That must, must be what it is. Right, let's talk about climate change then. Have a listen to the BBC News this afternoon and feast your ears. They are sucking the marrow out of life, as Robin Williams said in the Dead Poet Society. They are sucking the marrow out of life. Listen to this. BBC Sport has discovered there could be a 30% increase in the air miles of teams and fans travelling to men's football games around Europe next year. Now, the projected figures for next season would equate to something like 4,000 trips to the moon and back, releasing nearly half a million tonnes of greenhouse gases. Well, Europe's... Football governing body, UEFA, has added 177 fixtures to its various tournaments, despite a promise to reduce its carbon footprint. Oh, my God. The BBC has done a report. The bastard BBC has looked into football. 
There are more games going to be played. There are, there are that, that didn't sound well. That didn't sound good. That didn't sound like a professional broadcaster. Next year, we'll see more games played. And the BBC is concerned that the flights taken by the teams and their supporters will add a lot of CO2 to the atmosphere. Let's hear more of the report this time. Dan Rowan, sports editor for the BBC. Go ahead, Dan. Winning a European trophy is something that clubs and their fans dream of. But with UEFA set to expand the three men's club competitions it runs, the potential cost to the environment is now becoming clearer. It's terrible, this, isn't it? The BBC has estimated teams and their supporters travelling to European away fixtures already rack up around one and a half billion air miles each year. One and a half billion air miles travelled by fans getting out of their houses for a couple of days for a bit of crack with the lads. We've got Ajax in the Champions League next Thursday. Fantastic. Wednesday. It would be a Wednesday or a Tuesday. Let's have a couple of days. But you're a bastard because what you're actually doing is you're causing climate catastrophe. But from next season, there'll be 177 extra European club matches, taking the total to 981 each year. The projected air miles rises to almost 2 billion, equating to an estimated 480,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions annually. In a statement, UEFA said the expansion came after an extensive consultation in which they listened to the ideas of fans, coaches, national associations and leagues. And although they mandate the sale of away tickets, UEFA added they have no operational control over the travel of teams and ticket holders. Wow. We have no operational control, says UEFA. So the onus is going to be put on the football clubs themselves. Wait for it, dear listener. Give it a year or two and football clubs themselves will be coming under enormous pressure. Professional sports teams, not just football clubs, will come under pressure to reach net zero. Everything alive will be pressured to meet net zero, except for the flora and the faunae. Faunae? Faunae. The animals and the plants won't... We'll just kill the animals, is what we'll do. They won't be expected to do it. But every human being on, on Earth and every institution will be told, you've got to meet net zero. So what we're hearing here is that in the next couple of years or beyond, football clubs will be asked to, well... Just don't take any supporters with you when you play away from home in Europe. Have a listen to this prick you're going to hear next. His name is David Wheeler. He works for the Professional Footballers Association, which is a union. It's a union. And pro footballers are a member of the union. This guy's David Wheeler. He is a young man. And his job is PFA Sustainability Champion. Wait for this. Instead of being a positive force for good, they're actually exacerbating the problem and and actually pushing us closer to a real serious like situation with like a climate crisis or oh my god oh my god he's criticizing uefa because uefa have added 177 games next year and says they're pushing us towards climate crisis instead of being a positive force for good they're actually exacerbating the problem and and actually pushing us closer to a real serious like situation with like a climate crisis or a climate emergency climate emergency i just think it's the dereliction of duty uefa was criticized by campaigners for staging a pan-continental euros across 11 countries in 2021 but has committed to a 50 percent reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 and achieving net zero by 2040. right net zero by 2040 right listen to michel uva 
Now, Michel Uva is a man. Michel Uva. He's UEFA's sustainability director. We are increasing number of match, but we are providing all the clubs with a carbon footprint calculator. What? What was that? I got such a fright there, I didn't properly open my microphone. Did he say that UEFA will provide all the clubs with a carbon footprint calculator? We are providing all the clubs with a carbon footprint calculator. Fantastic! Who's going to manage that, I wonder? To start to understand how is the carbon footprint and pushing them to reduce the emissions. It's exactly what I said. It's exactly what I said. Now you might say, well, you heard the clip earlier. No, I said it anyway. That's what they're going to do. They're going to put the onus on the football clubs. Yeah, we're going to add more and more football matches to the schedule and provide more and more opportunities for clubs to play each other internationally at club level. But we're going to push the clubs pretty hard not to create any more CO2. So the clubs will have to do it. I'm always trying solution. But well, one solution will be to not grow the competition. But That's the BBC arsehole, Dan Rowan. Don't grow the competition. Another solution could be to engage all the clubs to come in this journey. UEFA says fans at next year's Euros in Germany will be offered discounted rail tickets in a bid to reduce air travel. But one former executive at the governing body told us that for club games, more drastic action was needed to tackle away fans taking flights. Amazing. More drastic action is needed to prevent human beings, men, women, getting out of their country for a few days to see Milan, to see Turin, to see Valencia, to see Sevilla. Nah, to see Paris, nah, nah. See, this is the death of life, dear listener, which is an inversion, really. They claim the climate crisis, if left unchecked, will herald the death of life. But that's bullshit. They're killing life. They're sucking the joy out of it and replacing it with fear, aren't they? Fear based on bullshit. Fear of each other. Fear of living, of travelling. And you know, I came across this today. Dale Vince of Extinction Rebellion. Ironically, ironically, he owns Forest Green Rovers, which I think is a championship football club. Their game with Mansfield was called off last weekend because of pitch flooding. It might be this weekend, right? And he says, this is his tweet. Wait for this. This guy owns a professional football club in the championship, I think. Forest Green Rovers game versus Mansfield was called off this weekend due to pitch flooding. But it was no ordinary waterlogged pitch. Mansfield itself was flooded. Climate denial is dangerous and should be illegal. This is the guy who founded Extinction Rebellion, who himself owns a soccer club, saying that climate denial is dangerous and should be illegal, just after saying a game was called off because of a waterlogged pitch, a waterlogged pitch because of a river that burst its banks, not because of climate change, but because the river hasn't been dredged in 50 years. Dredging. It's amazing. Simple. It's how flooding was avoided for many years. Dredging. You know what dredging is? Couldn't be any simpler. You dredge the riverbed. Right? Make it deeper. When you know you're going to have lots of rainfall, as you do in the winter. Climate denial is dangerous and should be illegal. Wow. This is the Richie Allen Show. All shows this week, sponsored by NutraHealth365.com. 
Get yourself boosted for winter. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. You know, I'm not somebody who advocates violence. I'm not. And when I say things that sound... It's, slap, it's slapstick, really, because I do not advocate violence ever. I say things every now and then which might seem to contradict my... My stance, my peaceful stance. But, but but how does a guy like Dale Vince suggest that climate change denial should be illegal? And how does he still have his legs today? I don't understand that. Because there was a time, and we can say that metaphorically, I don't mean his legs should be amputated. But, you know, I mean metaphorically. The legs should be taken out from under him. This is what I mean by satire. These guys couldn't have existed 20 years ago. Now you're going to say they did, Richie. Well, they did. Yeah, you had Al Gore, the bullshitter, you know, taking 7,200 trips around the world every year in private jets and telling everybody else to reduce their carbon footprint. But you didn't have guys with the balls to say that people should be prosecuted for denying climate change. Because satirists, comics, stand-ups, you know, radio presenters would have annihilated him. 22 minutes it is past the hour of 5 o'clock. This is... Tuesday's Richie Allen show with me, Richie Allen. Looking forward to speaking with my guest shortly. That should be absolutely fascinating. Thank you for your messages, by the way. They're coming in thick and fast, just like me, although I'm not fast. Ardell says, Green is non-league. Is it? Forest Green Rovers. I thought they'd come up the leagues. Hang on. Uh, Yeah, I think you're right. I'm thinking of another team that came up the leagues. Um, Forest Green Rovers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's wrong with me? They were never getting to the championship, were they? It's um, just been a long week. It's only Tuesday as well. Yeah, they're they're non-league. Very good, very good, very good. Um, sorry, no, they're in League Two. They're in League Two. So they're not non-league, Ardle, but I was wrong, of course. They're in League Two. That's the one. League Two. They're, they're in the same league as Wrexham, Ryan Reynolds and, and the gang, and Salford as well. Salford City, of course, as well. God, I, it's gone quick this first hour. I have more to tell you, but um, I'll have to get my guest on in a moment. A G-man says, speaking of flooding, the local town paid 1.2 million for flood defences. They failed and the town flooded. Hi to Pete who says, loving the BBG. Thank you, Pete. Nicholas says they'll be pushing to have people sitting in a darkened room in their homes watching the match via a paid licence on their phones. They will, Nicola. Absolutely, 100%. Hi to Stuart, who says, I take it no BBC sports presenters will be going to report on these matches. Well said, Stuart. Well said. But you know what, Stuart? They probably won't send the BBC reporters. They will sit in sound booths, something they've been doing for years anyway. I mean, most of the time, commentators do travel to attend the actual sporting event they will be commenting on. But over the years, when there have been issues in certain countries... They have done, they have performed their commentaries from sound booths where they pipe in the sound to make it all sound very real. So that's probably on the cards permanently in the future. Anne says, obviously, none of them are critical thinkers. They cannot work out that net zero equals nothing will grow and we will not be allowed to live. 
Hi to Alexandra, who says, Richie, apparently 41% of the French population is in favour of restricting everyone to only four flights in their entire lives to fight climate change if we can trust the poll. And Alexandra sends me a link to a poll. Imagine that. Four in ten French people, if it's true, think it's great. Let's give everybody four flights. Not a year. Not a year. No, no. That'd be bad enough, right? But but four flights for your life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, and Chris says, perhaps these pretentious BBC knobheads reporting on events should start using a green screen rather than jet off to be live at the scene. Very good. Just like Stuart said, very good indeed. Hi to Rob, who says, Does any of these idiots in the mainstream media know how much CO2 is released to make aluminium? If I were them, I'd start with investigating this and reporting on it, says Rob. Thank you, Rob. Ah, you're doing it to me now with your messages. Derek says, Richie, I'm a big fan of Jim Cornette. Jim Cornette. Wrestling, no? Can you get a Richie Allen face t-shirt in the same style? Maybe. We'll have to look into that. And David Bramble says, don't worry, Richie. I'm sure the Kenyan soccer squad is facing the same problems, you scally. Thank you very much, David. Music, when we come back, my guest will join me Tuesday's programme. We are the 24th of October, 2023. And this is Daft Punk and Get Lucky. Do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah, music from Daft Punk and Get Lucky on the Richie Allen Show. The time is coming up 4.20. Well, it's nearly half past five o'clock here in Salford. Thanks for your messages. Hundreds of messages coming in on the app and on the website. A lot of excitement about my guest this hour. I'm looking forward to meeting him as well. He's uh, written a very, very important book. The foreword, by the way, was written by RFK Jr. A lot of interest among our listeners in the presidential campaign of RFK Jr. If you've been injured by a vaccine in the United States of America, what do you do about it? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Well, the only place you go, really, or the only place you can go, is to the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Programme. That's where you seek recourse if you want compensation, if you've been injured, you've got to convince them, the NVICP. It's known as the Vaccine Court. But families do not know, when they set out on this journey, is that it can take forever and a day to uh, complete a case and to gain any sort of recognition or compensation. And for most or many families, it drives them to the brink of bankruptcy because they're caring for their vaccine-injured family member that's costing a lot of money. As they're paying for legal aid, that's costing a lot of money. And then they lose, many of the cases they lose, and they find out that the result has been manipulated by the government in defence of vaccine policy in the United States of America. This is very prescient at the moment because we know that tens of thousands of people, and this is just here in the UK and Ireland, have been injured or very badly injured, or maybe killed by a COVID jab. But it seems it's very serious in the United States. Our guest is the author of The Vaccine Court 2.0, and he hosts a very listenable podcast called Right on Point. He's in Minnesota. Let's welcome Wayne Rohde to the programme. Hello, Wayne. Welcome. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, Richie. I really appreciate it. It's an honour, Wayne. Thanks for doing it, pal. I know your time is precious. So thanks for coming on, and congratulations on the book. It's very important. Can I just ask you this? When, when I was researching your work and the podcast, did you find out, I think you might have found out this bit of information, that as of August this year, there have been more than 12,000 petitions filed um, in the United States by people claiming that they were injured by a vaccine. And worse again, that only five of them were deemed as being compensable. Five in 12,000 were found to be genuine and that compensation was appropriate. Is that right, Wayne? It's 12,000 for the um, what we call countermeasures, um, which is anything to do with the COVID pandemic. It's a little over about 12,100 petitions have been filed. Of that, uh, 9,000 and plus are vaccine related. And the balance, a little over 3,000, is uh, for medical devices, antiviral drugs like remdesivir or anything else. So 12,000 that's COVID related, which is uh, a subset of what we call traditional vaccines, which has been over 24, 25,000 have been filed over the history of that program. So, but COVID related, we're looking at 12,200, and then of that, 9,000 plus are vaccine COVID related. Thanks for clearing that up, Wayne. So 9,000 plus COVID vaccine related, and the others are due to other interventions. And only five have been deemed worthy of compensation. What does that mean, Wayne? Are the the, the other... 11,995 people in cases, are they deluded or simply making it up? Well, no. What this is, is that uh, the the actual compensation, there was another one just announced recently, so there's now six, but here's, here's the problem with them. They're not being compensated traditionally. What they are is being reimbursed for what we call unreimbursed medical expenses. So someone who uh, suffered myocarditis from a COVID vaccine and has permanent heart damage, and will have to live with it for the rest of their life, they'll get a check uh, probably for, you know, two to $4,000. That's it. No way. For uh, medical, uh, you know, uh, medical expenses that your insurance didn't cover. This is totally ridiculous, unacceptable, but this is where our government position is uh, regarding COVID. It's it's unbelievable the number of people who are severely injured and yet are basically being thrown under the bus. When we'll talk, and we've got as much time as you have over the next 45 minutes, um, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll work with you. Um, you obviously being in the morning there in Minnesota and with, with things to do. So we'll work together with the time. So we have as much as 45 minutes, 50 minutes as we need, because this is hugely important. And we'll talk about the court and how this began in 1986. We'll talk about all of this, because your research is impeccable. It's brilliant, by the way, because when I bring guests on, I try to pick holes in the research, but I couldn't, Wayne. I couldn't pick any holes in yours. So, um, So that's a good thing. But tell me, is it tort reform? Do we blame tort reform for the fact that a man or a woman could have myocarditis, which is a life-changing and potentially fatal condition, is only worth two 
to $4,000 in compensation. Do we blame tort reform? Because when, when I think of somebody winning a case against a pharmaceutical company, so you've won the case, the judge or the jury says, yes, you've been given myocarditis. I'd expect the person to get a couple of million dollars, Wayne, and punitive damages to be awarded in the tens of millions. Why does that not happen? Well, it goes back to 1986 when, when our Congress passed legislation. And yes, some people say that's you know, part of, it's kind of an experiment in tort reform because it takes it out of the traditional judicial process of a judge and a jury. You do not have that element. The vaccine court is just basically uh, really is not a traditional, what we call a court setting where you have a judge and a jury to, to decide the matters. Um, now, with the regular vaccines, now, this is where it gets really uh, uh, sometimes confusing for people to understand, but it's also very maddening at times, is, is that for traditional vaccines, such as a flu shot, an MMR, uh, DTaP, uh, things like this, you have, a, you know, if you have med medical records and you have uh, proper diagnosis and things like this, you do stand a chance to receive ample um, compensation, especially if you have lifelong care that you need, meaning ongoing medical needs for the rest of your life. Those, um, those compensation awards can be uh, provided to you in the form of an annuity or a cash payment and take care for the rest of your life. But what our government has done for COVID-related interventions or what we call countermeasures is basically, we're not gonna do anything for you. It's, it's really, it was set up to protect the vaccine program, not to protect the citizens of our country. And, and that's what makes it, it, it very difficult to understand and frustrating for so many who have been injured. I estimate, you know, anywhere from a uh, quarter of a million to a million people have been injured. Most of them just do not know they are injured because um, heart inflammation and other things like this might take a long time to manifest itself or people don't understand the linkage between, hey, I just I'm out of breath all the time and I didn't have I wasn't like this, but oh, thank goodness I'm, I'm getting taking the fifth and sixth booster so I don't get COVID as severe. My they God. bought into this Kool-Aid or drinking this Kool-Aid. They don't know they're, they're actually uh, injured. And Wayne, um, could it be, excuse the interruption, could it be, like, yeah. could it be like it is here in the UK? My theory, and I have no medical qualifications whatsoever, so I must put the, um, the caveat here that I, people shouldn't listen to me. This is just a guess. But I believe that people are walking around with COVID jab injuries. And I believe those are being put down to or written off as long COVID. Is that something that's going on in the U.S. to your knowledge? You're you're one hundred percent correct. Um, the uh, our federal government has initiated some long COVID studies. We're finding that most of the people participating were actually vaccinated, and then got COVID, or they had COVID got vaccinated and got COVID again. So it is, it is plausible 
And I think you were uh, were very correct on our uh, assumptions. It is associated with a vaccine. Um, a year and a half ago, I was talking with uh, uh, an esteemed epidemiologist and virologist, Gert Vandebosch, and he told me that he believed those who are vaccinated and then boosted are becoming magnets for any future variants um, or mutated viruses uh, related to COVID, the SARS-CoV-2. So these people here, as you said, they're walking around and they're in a brain fog and, and they're saying they're long COVID. They're actually vaccine injured and also might be suffering some long-term effects of the COVID virus, the infection, but it's because they have been in uh, vaccinated and probably received boosters that uh, kind of makes them linger. And it's very difficult to provide care for them because no one really knows where we're going with this virus. And you said something hugely important earlier on, and that is that traditionally with, with a vaccine, with an intervention, if somebody was to be harmed by it and, you know, they, they, they took a case out, their quality of life would be taken into consideration and they might receive a generous compensation based on, you know, a really fair examination of just how badly affected they were. But the COVID jabs are not treated like this. And again, this is speculation. Why did our governments afford such protections to the manufacturers of the COVID jabs? Because if you were a cynic, Wayne, you might suggest that they might have suspected that these jabs were going to cause so much harm. We're starting to now uh, understand the clinical trial process and the data that, that came from there that was really hidden from the public. Um, you go back to uh, kind of like where, you know, Pfizer received their approval for their vaccine in 108 days, 108 days from the, our federal, the United States government. Yet we sued them to ask for those clinical trial data. There's hundreds of thousands of pages. And our government and Pfizer didn't want to, you know, provide it for 75 years, take 75 years to get back those documents. And the federal judge here in the United States says that's ridiculous. You need to provide these documents uh, expediently. So, and then we're looking at the, 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 the clinical trial data and we're finding out that Pfizer and Moderna here in the United States and now we're seeing with AstraZeneca there in uh, the United Kingdom, this is that they hid a lot of the problems that they saw in their own clinical trials. They, we, we're now seeing where deaths in the clinical trials for those who are vaccinated exceeded those who were unvaccinated. Yeah. So, so it, it's just, we were, uh, our governments were lied to us, but also our governments lied to the public. They said it was safe and effective. It's not. That's a marketing slogan. That's all it is. Let me ask you so, this, Wayne. Let me ask you this. Yeah, go ahead. A marketing slogan. By the way, folks, you are listening to Wayne Rohde. 
Um, it's O-R-O-H-D-E. I really recommend strongly that you follow Wayne on Twitter and I will put links to his website and to where you can buy his book, by the way, on the podcast notes later on. This is a live radio show. It's very interactive. Lots and lots of messages and questions coming in uh, for Wayne. Wayne is uh, the man behind uh, this uh, really important book, folks. It's The Vaccine Court 2.0 and he's got a podcast right on point. Check it out. Wayne, Congress, I think, but certainly the law, used to have a real appetite for going after Big Pharma. I've been a journalist since 1998, in the mainstream for most of my, my, my the first half of my, my career. And I remember reporting on $5 billion awards against some of the biggest companies. You know, um, Pfizer. It seemed that back in the day, when they put a bad drug on the market, they were discovered and they were punished. Now, there are those who will argue they weren't punished hard enough, but the the fines were massive. You remember some of these fines. So there used to be an appetite for going after these, let's call them what they are, bastards, excuse my language. Why not now, Wayne? Oh, they still do in the drugs, but not in the vaccines. They are protecting the vaccines, um, uh, the manufacturers. Now, Pfizer has been, as you just uh, alluded to, Pfizer's been fined billions of dollars, and other um, um, pharma manufacturers have been fined uh, millions of dollars for fraud and uh, for other things in regards to, you know, look at Merck, what they did with Vioxx. And then you have your manufacturers, you know, Purdue Pharma with opioids and things like this. But for whatever reasons we're wanting to protect, and in 1986, we gave the vaccine manufacturers immunity from lawsuits because they were sold a bill of goods to say, Hey, we're going to pull out of the market. We're not going to provide vaccines anymore because we're losing in court. Now what is it's, it's something that's unbelievable is, is that our government and you look at the lobbying effort by vaccine manufacturers, it's like, I believe they have, for every member of Congress, there's five lobbyists from pharma. My God, pushing that, and they've got millions and millions of dollars that they use every year for campaign contributions and other efforts. And if you notice, in the United States, the advertising, we have uh, one of only two countries in the whole world that allows direct, what we call direct to consumer advertising. New Zealand being the other country where pharma can actually advertise directly to uh, a person who's sitting in their chair um, watching it on TV, any medication. Now, a lot of those are drugs, but you notice now this fall, there's a big push for the flu shot and the COVID vaccine. People here in the United States are starting to get fed up. And what we're seeing now is the uptake of COVID boosters is only about 3% right now. So that means so many people in the United States are just saying, no, I'm not getting a COVID shot anymore. I know too many people who have been injured, who have been sick. Uh, I know a lot of people who have uh, uh, severely injured. I know a few people who have died. That's what we're seeing in the vaccine market. Yet, once again, as our uh, federal government 
protects the manufacturers and actually does the promotion, the advertising for them. CDC is promoting the vaccines, but yet will not promote what happens, the, the, uh, the adverse events and what people need to do to protect themselves if they suspect being injured. It's, it's, we're, we're, it's an upside down world. It is. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Lots of listeners want to talk to you. They're asking questions about VAERS, your, your reporting system. And apparently it's a bit more difficult and a bit more confusing to make a report than, than some people understand. So I'll ask you about that in a minute. But, but I, I want to go back to 86 because I've read a little bit about this. I mean, it's, it's so... I don't want to use, you know, emotive terms like evil, but, but it kind of is. So the, the Congress says, right, we'll, we'll, we'll establish the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act and this will bring it all, this will kind of make it much easier for people. It's in the best interest of the American people. You know, it'll be a really good watchdog for the pharmaceutical companies. But, but, but in reality, what happened was the vaccine manufacturers themselves had been lobbying Congress to change the rules around compensation and around reporting and around getting them into court. And what was on the face of it a good idea, this act passed in 86, actually was the best thing that could have happened to the pharmaceutical industry, as I understand it from your book, Wayne. I mean, that's it's sick, really, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Well, what happened here is, is that the original act was designed to be what Congress intended uh, to be a, a fast, fair, and equitable, generous compensation program for children who have been injured by the seven different vaccines at the time. We had the oral polio, then you had diphtheria, you had tetanus, you had pertussis, which is whooping cough. You also had measles, you had mumps, and rubella. And the actual program did compensate those families there of, of whose children were severely injured or may have died. And it was working well for a couple of years. And then all, you know, and but pharma also had a long-term plan here. We got the immunity from uh, for lawsuits. Then we're going after Congress. And they captured Congress in the early 90s. And then they started working on the judicial branch. And when Bruzewitz, which is versus Wyeth, which is the big U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2011, removed our option to go into the program and then leave, rejected decision and leave after 240 days and file a, a lawsuit against pharma. Our Supreme Court ruled in Bruzewitz that that option is no longer available. So the only place for uh, vaccine injury to be uh, litigated was in the vaccine court, the MVICP. So pharma got Congress to pass a law, and then pharma controlled Congress, and then pharma went after the judicial branch, and they basically have now got all three branches of our government, they're controlled, they're captured agencies, if you will. And you know, we often talk about the revolving door setup where pharma executives end up going into 
work for the CDC, the regulator, and that's true. But I looked into something a couple of years ago, and I was able to find over the years now, not just recently, but a number of pharma executives who ended up getting elected to Congress or getting elected on state, you know, in state elections, on state um, legislatures and stuff. So it's not just the CDC. I mean, in any sane society, in any fair society, it would be against the law, wouldn't it, for somebody who'd made their career in medicine ever working for the regulator. It just wouldn't be allowed, Wayne. And yet it happens just as... You know, it's as simple as nobody ever questions it. Nobody says, I mean, you will, you'll get a comedian. You'll get, um, you know, you'll get RFK Jr. You'll get one or two people occasionally who will say, how can this be? And people will just shake their heads and nothing ever happens. Nothing is ever done about it. That's that's correct. And and, and probably the the worst case scenario, the worst case of that, that revolving door was the former CDC director, Julie Gerbeding, who after got the necessary um, ruling in the autism omnibus where MMR and Samarasol, a component of manufacturing of vaccines, um, does not cause autism, which was a complete travesty of justice. She then resigned from CDC with the game plan. She had a job waiting for her at Merck. That's right. And she later rose to, you know, vice president of Merck and and uh, one of the divisions. And then she cashes out and makes multi millions in stock options and everything else. This was a thank you from pharma to one of our um, the director of the CDC. We see that nowadays with Scott Gottlieb and a few others. Um, this is what pharma does. It's this revolving door. But Congress doesn't want to touch it because there are many members of Congress that want to, after they leave Congress, they want to go work for industry. Of course they do. So, you know, they don't want to kill the golden goose, uh, the goose that lays the golden egg. No, they want cushy what, jobs, don't they? They want cushy yeah. consultancy jobs where they're they're made for life. It sounds like the mafia. We've got Wayne Rohde live on the program. Wayne's an author, a researcher and a podcaster. Like I said, all of the links to Wayne will be on the podcast notes later on. But he's on Twitter, of course. Do follow him on Twitter there. And um, uh, links to thevaccinecourt.com. Get to thevaccinecourt.com. And he's at Wayne Rohde. It's R-O-H-D-E. At Wayne Rohde on, on Twitter. Um, let me, let me ask you this. A number of people are asking about VAERS. Um, and because... When the vaccines were, the jabs, let's not call them vaccines, were rolled out, we, we heard about VAERS and we heard, no, before we go there, I want to go there, I've got to ask you this. Listeners are piling in on me here, Wayne. They're saying, Richie, ask Wayne, is he aware that in the Irish Parliament recently, very recently, and in the British Parliament in the House of Commons in London, there were two debates about excess death numbers and why excess deaths are, are so high, and less than a dozen of the Irish members of Parliament showed up, and in the UK it was less than a dozen. And this is out of hundreds, because listeners are saying to me, Wayne, nothing can be more serious than learning that more people are dying than we would expect to die in ordinary times. In Ireland, for a fact, in Ireland, d- deaths of 15 to 24-year-olds 
are up 30%. I've got to give Louise Rosengrave a big shout out here. She'll be on the programme soon. She's doing great work on that. Two, two parliamentary debates, Wayne, which were very difficult to schedule and members of parliament didn't care. Are you aware of that and what do you think? Yeah, I saw the video of, uh, uh, of the, I guess it's an MP, member of parliament uh, from the British uh, government um, yeah. speak and I was very difficult to find anybody else that was attending, but yes, there was a few people there, but that's basically the same type of a treatment. Uh, we cannot get good quality uh, hearings here in the United States on uh, mortality and vaccine injury. It's uh, This is ridiculous. But I did see this um, video that was posted, I believe, over the weekend, uh, from the British Parliament, and uh, I, I got oh my goodness! But that's you know, God bless him, the member that stood up, and I imagine the same thing in in, in Ireland, yeah, um, where it happened. It's just uh, our our elected officials and our our uh, legislatures or assemblies or parliaments. Um, I believe we're all been captured and therefore they just don't have the appetite to do what they need to do to take care of people um, and prevent all these deaths. I mean, Ed Dowd done a tremendous amount of work and study um, over there in, in the United Kingdom on their excess of mortality rates um, and disability rates. Um, it's unbelievable uh, what this, these COVID vaccines are doing to uh, the populations of each of our countries. Let me read some comments, Wayne. Um, this is a live and interactive radio show. You're with the Richie Allen Show. The time is coming up for two and a half minutes to the top of the air. Wayne Rody, author and podcaster and researcher, is with us on the programme. It's a, an honour to have him on. This is hugely important. Dot is in Grimsby. Good evening, Dot. She says, Wayne is bang on. Wayne, that is an English colloquialism. It means you're right. You're bang on. You're right. Uh, she says, many folk have witnessed vaccinated family and friends suffer strange adverse health events that they had never had before vaccination. And they refuse all types of vaccines now. The trust is leaving people. People are losing trust. And if that's true, that's a good thing. Isabel is listening. Wait till you hear this, Wayne. Richie, please uh, share this with Wayne. In my neighbourhood only, in the last five weeks, my friend has met two separate ladies, each complaining of lethargy, breathing issues and bruising. My friend, who is vaccine damaged, knew straight away these looked like vaccine injuries. So she urged them to go and see a doctor. The point is, both ladies never thought about it and had never seen a doctor about it either. It takes a vaccine damaged person to raise the alarm. People otherwise have no idea they might be affected. That's an amazing comment from Isabel. Is that possible, Wayne, that some people could have a jab and then shortly afterwards could experience an adverse event and not actually put two and two together and think it might be something else? Oh, that's very common because uh, um, a lot of people believe that vaccines have been safe and effective and they don't understand that. That's even... Worse is, is that doctors refuse to uh, the linkage, and when people, um, you know, uh, get a vaccine, 
and something they develop a medical condition 24 hours or 36 hours after the fact they're saying no that's not the vaccine you had an under you know uh, a pre-existing condition and uh, somehow it was aggravated by stress or we had a lot of people here in the United States so when they first got the vaccine uh, they went to doctors and it's reported oh that's just hysteria it's, this is just something you, you know you need to calm down it's it was aggravated by stress it's not related to the vaccine at all and that's very problematic is, is that people are getting injured, but they don't know how to get better and they need a doctor to help diagnose them so they can figure out how to get better. But if the doctors don't want to know or they refuse to help, then where do the, where do the citizens turn to? Yeah, where they do they to, go? They talk to each other and that's it. And I understood incorrectly, as it turns out, that in the United States, the VAERS reporting system was, as we say, handy, that it was pretty user-friendly. But I'm being told by listeners here tonight, Wayne, some of them listening in your country, that it isn't user-friendly, that it's very confusing and very difficult to report. Is that right? Oh, yeah, you're correct. And the, the, when, when VAERS was first established as part of the 1986 Act, and, as, and it came out to be, and it first launched in 1990, being managed by the CDC and the FDA, it was uh, an easy reporting system. Um, and basically someone could fax in a piece of paper and, and with their information on it. They could uh, fill out a form, call in, etc. cetera. Um, Back in 2013 and 2014, when my first book was released, CDC changed that VAERS program and went to a new online system. And it made it more restrictive to how you had to fill it out. But also it took a long time to fill uh, a report out. Instead of just taking a couple of minutes and putting on a piece of paper and faxing it, it now takes anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes, especially if it's done by a clinician because they're gonna type in all the information that they have from that medical record of their patient, 20 to 30 minutes to fill out a form. Now, what that does is it also does not provide any motivation and actually works against clinicians reporting. Because if you're a doctor or you're a nurse and you just worked a 12-hour shift, you're completely exhausted, do you think you're going to then turn around and enter into VAERS yeah. and spend another three to four hours, maybe five hours, and put in the necessary uh, reporting of, of what happened to your parent, uh, patients? Probably not. Another element that came out of my research is looking at when I interviewed over 285 families who had vaccine-injured family members, one of the questions I asked was, did you know about VAERS and did you file a report? And all but two said, no, they did not know about VAERS and they didn't file a report. But then I followed up on the two that said, yeah, we filed a report. They also mentioned that they asked the nurse or the doctor to help them. And they said, no, if I do, I might be subject to termination. So 
it's this, you know, this peer uh, level of do not help your patient file a report that still exists today in the United States. But with COVID, we have a lot of reports filed, but they are being filed. The serious ones are being filed by clinicians. Yes, there is still intimidation not to file them, but we are seeing more, almost all the deaths and serious events are being filed by clinicians. So we know that they're solid, they're credible reports, and, um, but it's very difficult. It's time consuming. And I think that was done by design by the CDC a few years ago to slow down the reporting. The, the revolving door CDC with employees that used to work for Big Pharma. It's mad stuff, this Wayne. Wayne Rohde is our guest. The Vaccine Court 2.0 is the book. Check it out, right? Uh, there is a website. I've given you the website already. Go to thevaccinecourt.com. Wayne's on Twitter. Look for Wayne Rohde. If in the 10 or so minutes we have left, if I can be, if we can talk from a personal point of view, because yours is, I know it's a vast, massive, cavernous country, the United States of America, I know it is, but I travelled a little bit in it, and if there's a common theme running through the people of your great country, it's a real pride in your First Amendment, you know, the right to say what you think, and the right to be heard without suffering any consequences for it. Did you ever see in your life, Wayne, did you see it coming, what we've seen in the last three years? Not just the censorship of people, but the the destroying of people's careers, doctors, nurses, um, other clinicians, because they dared to put their hands up and say, I think something might be wrong here and we need to look at it. Did that ever occur to you when you were researching the book originally back 10 or so years ago? Did you ever see this happening? I didn't see it at the extent that we have it today, but I did see it in uh, some cases when I was researching where when you have, uh, uh, it was a case regarding uh, hepatitis B causing what we call tubular sclerosis. And you had medical experts that testify on behalf of the petitioner, which is the injured party. And you have medical experts that testify on behalf of the government that are defending the government. What I noticed there in that, in a couple instances, is that government uh, medical experts refused to testify on behalf of the government. Okay, so they were then fired as a medical expert. But then I noticed that they their jobs at some very uh, higher education leading research universities were, were placed into jeopardy. So that tells me our government then went after a medical expert that went against their policy and, and tried to intimidate them. I saw that a couple times. But what is happening now, yes, you have a lot of First Amendment battles here and my goodness you know government in cahoots with social media uh, big tech companies to kind of stifle uh, uh, free speech but I'm writing an article and I'm going to try to get it out by the end of the uh, end of the week I'm now seeing it in the federal judge level we have four levels of when you have petitions uh, like for if you have an MMR causing uh, some type of an injury, seizures, 
you can appeal to a federal judge, what they call federal court claims, and then from there you can appeal up to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one step below our U.S. Supreme Court. In that Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, there's a judge that's been there for a long time, and she dissents a lot against other decisions. And that's kind of, she's in kind of dissenting because she understands what a petitioner, an injured person, goes through. And she's saying, wait a minute, we need to take a closer look at this instead of just rubber stamping a decision in favor of the, gov of the government. Well, they're now challenging her mental capacity. Oh, my God. And they're, they're trying to, yes, she's an elderly person, but when you listen to her oral arguments in the oral argument phase of any case, she is sharp as a tack, and she's actually, she has it better together better than a lot of uh, attorneys who maybe are 50 years of age. She understands this issue. They're attacking her and trying to challenge her mental capacity right now. Um, I'm trying to put it together. It's going to be, I kind of call it the judicial bloodletting, but that's where it's at. They're now going after judges who rule in favor of petitioners in our country. That's amazing, Wayne. By the way, Wayne's Substack account is thevaccinecourt.substack.com. So that's where you'll see the article when it's um, uh, published, thevaccinecourt.substack.com. In, in the time we have left, Wayne, so we've talked positively about the fact that people are, there's a heightened awareness in communities. And you said earlier on that the booster program for this autumn, this fall and winter is really, it's not really having any real take up. You said two to three percent. So, so there's probably a heightened awareness in society that people have been hoodwinked and they need to be on their guard when it comes to the jobs. So looking forward, will will we be able to build a better world out of this? And I, I know when I say build better, you know, I know the, the Great Reset, the, the Klaus Schwab and all these people, they used build back better. But will we be able to do something about our circumstances out of this um, tyranny and create better worlds for ourselves in the future? I suppose the simple question is, will we win in the end, Wayne? I truly believe we will, but it's we're a long ways away from it. Um, I think the public is now seeing that they don't they, uh, the lack of trust in our public health officials. I truly believe what we need to get public health officials out of the medical industry and allow patients and doctors to move forward. Public health officials are are one of the primary reasons. This goes back to, you know. Fauci and 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 Bricks and and others that misled us and Lewinsky, our, you know the CDC that misled us. A couple members of Congress are pushing forward to get you know people um, in hearings there, um, but it's going to take us as we walk the streets and live in our neighborhoods that we decide what's best. I have always believed parents know best for their families and adult individuals know best for themselves. Let them make the decisions for themselves, and let's get back to a patient-doctor relationship and get rid of public health policy out of the medical industry, because that's what's really destroyed the trust. It's gonna take a lot of time, 
Maybe Farmer will understand that. But if people continue to refuse and say, listen, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to be coerced. I'm not going to be threatened um, or taking uh, any type of medication or medical intervention, not just vaccines, but other types of interventions, too, unless I decide what's best for myself. It was terrific to meet you today, Wayne. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Continued success to you in your writing and um, raising awareness about these issues. A real pleasure. Thank you. Richie, thank you very much, and I really appreciate your show. Thank you very much, Wayne. Wayne Rohde, top man in Minnesota there, the author of The Vaccine Court 2.0, and he hosts the podcast Right on Point. And as I said, you'll find Wayne on Substack, thevaccinecourt.substack.com. I will put those links on the podcast notes when the podcast goes on Spotify, iTunes. The links will be there, but do follow Wayne and say hello to him on social media. Um, really important stuff that 12 and a half minutes past the hour you're with the Richie Allen Show for Tuesday back with you in 30 seconds Winter's on its way and so are colds flu and other respiratory illness <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3 C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support The Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Now, Gabriel is in Gary Owen and says, Richie, starting this week, the Irish Health Service is using podcasters and influencers to promote a nasal flu vaccine to children aged 3 to 12. Thanks, Gabriel. You've just reminded me. Children aged between 3 and 12, get your nasal flu jab in Ireland today. I'm only joking. Don't. Jesus, don't. (laughs) Stay away from it. Stay away from it. Davey, good evening. Richie, I watched a video today, Truth and Wellness, by Naomi Wolf. Uh, broadcast at the weekend. I'm sure Wayne would have seen it. Uh, the number of people not suffering uh, arthritis-related problems. Uh, broadcast at the weekend. I'm sure your guests would have seen it. The number of people not suffering arthritis-related problems. David, that doesn't make any sense at all. But you can rewrite it. I might see it before uh, the end of the programme. Hi to Sarah, who says, Richie, my cynical point of view is they've put the likes of Bridgen forward to make it look like there is a voice, but in reality, it'll make no difference. That's Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, that's the theory, which I have a bit of sympathy for, that the establishment, whichever establishment it might be, does tend to provide its own opposition. It creates its own opposition because it can control its own opposition, hence the term controlled opposition. So I agree with that, Sarah, or I I have sympathy with that. In the independent media, it's a term that's thrown around a lot by people who just don't agree with somebody. I mean, I've had that for years, going back to 2013 in London. If I said something, which I really meant, but somebody else didn't like it, it meant that I was controlled opposition, which I found very amusing. I would say, well, no, it just means I disagree with you, but I'm quite happy to present your position to... 
and then let the listener make their own mind up, you know. I had this the other night after I interviewed Kevin Barrett. You're controlled opposition. You said that Hamas bombed the hospital. No, I didn't. If you listen back, I didn't say anything of the sort. I asked Kevin to explain to me why Hamas would not be capable of, you know, operating or, or, or setting off a false flag event. That's all I did. Played the devil's advocate, dear listener. You know. Darren says, Dale Vince is part of many reasons why I couldn't bring myself to vote Labour. He's given Labour one and a half million in donations, so we know where we're going with the Labour government, says Darren. He has indeed. This is Dale Vince, who's the ecotricity guy, who founded or co-founded Extinction Rebellion, who yesterday called for climate change denial to be made a crime. Yeah. Now, I, I never, because I'm no prophet, as you well know, I'm no prophet at all. I, Jesus, my predictions take them and flush them down the toilet. But I, I did say this years ago. Uh, I said, it doesn't mean it will come true, but I said it wouldn't surprise me in the future if things like denying climate change would be outlawed based on the necessity to keep everybody on message to keep everybody fighting climate change. We can't have somebody say that climate change isn't real because, well, that's harmful because it is real and we have to fight it. So, yeah, I I could see this coming years ago, really, you know. I called climate lockdowns, didn't I? I should, I very rarely pat myself on the back for that, for that. But um, I did. And here we are. We're nearly there. Hi to William Henderson. Hi to Busy, who said, I was at the cash machine at the local supermarket and I overheard two women who obviously hadn't seen each other in a while. The women in, one woman in her late 50s was asked, how is she doing? She instantly replied, shocking, I've got blood clots on my lungs. Last year, I had a heart attack and Pete, I assume her husband says busy, had a stroke. It all happened within a few weeks. The other woman said, what did you do? Well, I'm no doctor. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Busy says, what do you do? Busy says, and he didn't do anything. He bit his tongue. They'll more than likely get this next clot shot booster, says Busy. Well, you can't with perfect strangers, Busy. If you overhear two perfect strangers talking about lung blood clots and stuff, even still, even though you might be right, I wouldn't be at all comfortable with interjecting there and saying, listen, do you mind if I tell you, for the reason that 99 times out of 100, they're going to tell you to fuck off. You know, especially in Salford. Fuck off. All right, fair enough. I will. I'll fuck right off. Hi to Jonathan Stone, who says, J.B. Handley's book, How to End the Autism Epidemic, is the best book to introduce the subject of vaccine injury and vaccine courts. It's available to listen on Audible, says Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, it's uh, coming up for 19 minutes. It is past the hour. This is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show, which begun earlier and will finish slightly early, but still a two-hour show. Shut up about it. And if you missed the first half an hour, you can download the podcast and listen to what you missed. And you did miss quite a bit. Excuse me. I've gone all dry. You missed quite a bit in the first half an hour. Or first hour even. I've gone all dry there. I need some water. I've got to grab some water in a moment. Tomorrow, Dr. Thomas Binder returns to the programme, live from Switzerland. On Thursday, Shannon Rowan 
who's an author, will be on the book. She's brilliant. Reached out to me a couple of weeks ago. Sent me her books. I love that. Uh, been reading them. Very good. Shannon will be on the programme on Thursday. So it's a busy week this week at BBG Towers. So it is, dearest uh, listener of mine. Indeedy. Richie's been on to say, going after the judge who's doing her job and questioning her mental acuity um, when you have Biden. <laughs> yes, right. When you have Yellen. When you have Fetterman, Feinstein and McConnell in senior positions. That is funny. So a judge is doing the right thing. Challenging the, the narrative and sticking up for the rights of people. And they bring into question the woman's mental or cognitive skills. They bring in, they question her mental capacity. And then says, Richie, just have a look at Biden. That's it. Just say Biden. That's enough. Holy mother of God. Uh, yeah. Rich Mortimer says, Richie, my son is 13. And the missus agreed to him having the nasal jab yesterday, the nasal vaccine. Today, he is off school, feeling ill. Rich Mortimer says, to say I'm not happy is an understatement, Rich. I should play Hey Joe for you by Jimi Hendrix. But then your missus might phone the old bill and report me for incitement of violence. Hey Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? I'm off to shoot my old lady because she gave me some the nasal jab. Do, 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 do. Yeah, let's rewrite the words of Hey Joe for daddies or for mummies whose husband or wife consented to a jab and you're not happy about it. Hey, Joe, I heard you jabbed our baby now. I heard you jabbed our baby. Yeah. And then you, after you pull the trigger, you've got to go to Mexico. There's nowhere you can go here, is there? No. It's not a good idea to go on the run in the UK. If you're in the southern states in America, matricide, which is killing your mum, what's the term for killing your wife? Is it just wife killing? I should know this as an English graduate. There is a term for killing your wife. If you're going to do it, I don't recommend you do it. Don't kill anybody is my, is my advice. But if you do find yourself killing your wife over an argument about COVID, do it if you're near the Mexican border because there is no extradition treaty between the United States and Mexico. You can do whatever you want as long as you make it over that border, dear listener. Fantastic. Bit of Hey Joe. Hey, well, I close out the programme at Hey Joe for Rich Mortimer. <laughs> In a few minutes... Hang on, let's see if I have it in the music bank. Jimi Hendrix. I used to go and watch a band in Waterford years ago. A band, a cover, a cover tunes band. They were the Burks, Mick and Gavin Burke. They were from Ferrybank. We were distant cousins, I think. At least, I think we were. One of them said to me many years ago, I think we have some relationship on your grandmother's side. This is how it goes in Ireland, you know. Anybody you meet, doesn't matter where you are. They could be in Donegal, you could be from McCroom in Cork. I think we, we must be related. Of course we are. Of course we're related. So Mick Burke and Gavin, spouse aside, says Jean Ann, spouse aside. That's a question mark, by the way. She's not calling it spouse aside for, for real. It might be spouse aside, the term for murdering your wife. It's a good shout, Jean Ann. I wouldn't have a Scooby-Doo, to be honest. Um, let's see, can we get Hey Joe, Jimi Hendrix up there now before I take my leave of you. Do download the podcast now if you missed the first part of the show for two reasons. One, because it's the greatest radio show in the history of radio, number one, he says, with me fingers crossed. Uh, but number two, it'll help me in the charts. So listen to it on iTunes if you can later on. 
Hey Joe, Jimi Hendrix, hang on there. We have a look at that. Looking forward to the match now. So I am. Ah, tis there, be Jesus. Jimmy, of course it's there, Jimmy Hendrix. Bound to be there, isn't it? Hang on. Just overwrite the track that's in the cart, and away we go. So there you are. Yes, I'm taking myself down the road now to be there for the memorial and the tribute to the late great Sir Bobby Charlton. Like I said, I wouldn't attend midweek games because I do take my job very seriously. That's not a joke. There's no punchline. I don't like to take the piss. So um, I generally tend to watch the midweek games on the television and go to the weekend games at Old Trafford. But I wanted to be there. Hence, I started at 4.30 and now I'm going to finish at 6.30. Bobby Charlton was a great, great, great man from the northeast of the UK. Played for Manchester United more than 700 times, I think, over 600 times. Scored 247 goals, I do believe. And was a gentleman, despite his amazing achievements in life. And um, he'd been poorly with dementia for a couple of years and we hadn't been seen him, we hadn't seen him much around Old Trafford and it was announced on Friday or was it Saturday? It was announced on Saturday afternoon, around about 3.30 or thereabouts that the great man had uh, passed away. He had an amazing life because he was one of the survivors of the Munich plane crash which was a, a terrible tragedy, very famous one you know, it. I suppose it played a big part in Manchester United becoming a, a global icon, I suppose, in terms of a sporting institution. And he came out of that and he managed to rebuild his life. He was never the same again, according to his friends, because he lived with a lot of guilt and sorrow, because these were his friends who died in this plane crash, very young men. But he came back to do extraordinary things with England and with United. And uh, ah, he's a... He's a, a link, or he was, to a bygone age when things were better. When, when sports people were sportsmen and women, when they were decent, when they were honourable, when they played for the love of it and not for £500,000 a week. And they had time for people. You could meet your heroes back then. You could meet them quite easily. If you wanted to know what Bobby Charlton was like, you could find him and meet him and say hello to him. Um, today, they're off limits, the sporting heroes of, of our children. They're completely off limits and unattainable. But Bobby was was a link to a bygone age when people were better, when things were better. And there are those listening to this now who will say, you're naive, Richie. There were always bad people in the world. Maybe there were, but people had more time for one another back then and more interest in one another. I'm going to leave then. This is for Rich Mortimer then. Rich, thanks. And listen, don't fall out with the wife, you know. Your wife is a wonderful woman. She's doing what she thinks is the right thing. You've got to coexist. But you can also listen to this. Thanks so much to my guests. Thank you, Wayne Rohde. Back tomorrow. Until then, bye. Hey.